Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. good to hear you sing and have you lead us in worship. As you might have guessed, uh, based on the music this morning, our topic today is the return of Christ. Our tier one topic has always been one of the most popular of all Christian doctrines. Announce this topic ahead of time and you are sure to get a bump in attendance. Become an expert on preaching about the return of Christ by doing so regularly and, of course, adding some details, and you are sure to have a thriving and profitable ministry for years to come. This doctrine has spawned movies and novels, predictions and prophecies. It's even motivated countless people to sell everything they have and prepare for its arrival. Again, we are talking today about the bodily or physical return of Christ, something we sometimes call His second coming. Speculation about this in our own lifetimes really ramped up after World War II. It was in 1948 that Israel became a nation once again, and because of that, end-time prophecy escalated. Well-known author Hal Lindsey predicted that 40 years later, that is in 1988, based on the generation of, of a, a generation in the Bible, he concluded it was 40 years. And so from 1948, he concluded that Christ would come again in 1988. And of course, you are well aware that that did not happen. So was Hal Lindsey disgraced as a false prophet? No. He continues in ministry even until this day. He is simply one example among many who have made predictions about the coming of Christ, experts or so they think they are, and they continue to make predictions and they continue to be wrong. But why are those predictions and the false prophets that make them forgotten, ignored, reinterpreted, or simply readjusted, and their ministry continues? It is because Christians like us have a hunger to want to know more. We want answers. We want details. And so we are apt to believe anybody that comes along quoting any kind of Bible verses, and we listen to what they have to say. And we read what they write. And we believe even when it doesn't happen. And then we we just start all over again. Now, all of that does not mean, of course, that the doctrine of the coming of Christ is not important. It certainly is important, or we wouldn't be looking at it in this series. It is not only important, it rises to the level of tier one, meaning this is a necessity for us if we are to be orthodox believers. But it is the return of Christ that is necessary. It is not all the details that go around it. It is not the timing. It is not the signs. It is the certainty of His return. And so while there is some information about all of those things in the Bible, those details, those scenarios 
are third tier issues, meaning that we can disagree on the details and still remain in fellowship in the same local church. Now, I realize there are some that would elevate those things to tier two. That, that is, they would say, no, you cannot be in the same church with me if you do not hold to the same end-time philosophy or theology or eschatology. That's the theological word for it. And so they would raise it to tier two. And you can readily see some of these churches because they add it to their names, or at least the byline of their name. But I believe that those things are third tier. And so I am not going to be talking today about pre, mid, or post-tribulation. I am not going to be talking about pre-mill or post-mill or ah-mill. I will not be speculating about which leader in the world might be involved or, or how the latest trouble in the Middle East is surely going to hasten today. I am not going to name names. I am certainly not going to give dates because I don't know them. And may I be so bold as to say you don't either. We simply don't have all of those details. And so my title today is, Will It Happen? Not when will it happen. That's what we really want to know. But my title is, Will It Happen? And to that, we can answer a confident yes. The return of Christ will indeed happen. And let's look in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Acts 1 and verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, understand, in using the title, Will It Happen?, I am acknowledging that we sometimes do have a little bit of doubt. We know the easy answer. We know the biblical answer. We've even read it just now that, yes, Jesus will come again. But frankly, it's been so many years, we have to acknowledge that there is sometimes some doubt. The Jews waited 400 years from the closing of prophecy in the Old Testament to the arrival of the Messiah. It was some 400 years that they waited they read the prophecies. They believed they were going to come true. They waited for the Messiah to arrive. And 400 years later, he did. And yet he was not the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. And so the vast majority of them failed to recognize him as the fulfillment. But now we have been waiting more than five times that time period. More than five times that 400 years and so my three points this morning will be in the form of questions, though I'm not asking you to play Jeopardy this morning. I'm just posing it all as questions. The first one is this, what do we know? 
All right, let's look at this situation and say, what is it that we do know? If we're acknowledging that there are a lot of things we don't know, like times and details and even signs, what is it that we do know? Well, first of all, we know that his return is certain. The text that we've read this morning obviously precedes what we looked at last week. Last week, we were in Acts chapter 2. And you recall that that was Peter's famous sermon on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had come upon them as had been promised, and they were speaking the Word of God in the languages of the people who were assembled there, so much so that they were all amazed and perplexed as to what was going on. And so Peter explains to them that this is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And what we see here this morning precedes that because here we have the promise that what we saw last week in chapter 2 is in fact going to happen. And so after witnessing the ascension of Jesus, they stand there gazing into heaven, not sure exactly what to make of what they've just witnessed. And we can well imagine that they were speechless with their mouths open, wondering what in the world they have just seen. All of this only interrupted by two men, two men that we, of course, know to be angels, and they make a statement that tells us that the return of Jesus is certain. They say to the disciples, he will come again in the same way that you've seen him leave. That is a clear and certain promise from God himself. And it is not the only time in Scripture that this is promised, and we'll get to some more of that shortly. So no matter how many years have come and gone since this promise was given, no matter how many years that we and others have waited, this is a promise from God, and like all of His promises, it will be fulfilled according to His perfect time. So His return is certain. Secondly, we know that His return is mysterious, which is really a way of saying that we know that we don't know. We know that there is a lot that we don't know, even if we think we do know, we don't. Once again, the text is plain here, and this time it comes from the lips of Jesus himself. The disciples were interested in when Jesus was going to restore Israel, when he was going to bring about the kingdom, and that is something that they had always been interested in. It is why during his ministry they had argued about who was going to be the greatest when that kingdom arrived. It is why the two brothers had their mother go to Jesus and say, can my boys sit one on your right and one on your left? Because they were enamored with the idea that Jesus was going to instill his kingdom and they were going to be a vital part of it. And yet there were so many misconceptions about the kind of Messiah that Jesus is and the nature of his kingdom. And so here they are still asking those same questions. After the 40-plus days that Jesus has appeared to them, all of those post-resurrection appearances, and by the way, this ascension now tells us that those post-resurrection appearances are over with, and yet they are still asking the same questions after all of these events have transpired. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You know how sometimes your teachers say to you, there is no such thing as a dumb question? They're wrong. There are dumb questions. They're just saying that to try to get you to ask questions, but they know that there are dumb questions. Now, this is not the dumbest question I've ever heard, but it's not the brightest one either. 
And so they say, is now the time, after all we've gone through, is now the time? And Jesus gives a rather popular answer that is still popular today. He says, it's none of your business. Now, that's not the way he words it. He's a lot nicer than that. But that's essentially what he is saying here. That's information that you are not privy to. And so that is the extent of his answer, which is why it always amazes me when these so-called Bible scholars make predictions that they don't seem to know that a verse like this is in the Bible. And so they want us to believe that Jesus has told them something that he would not tell his disciples and something he flat out said was not their business to know. In fact, on another occasion, Jesus made it even plainer. He said, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, nor you nor I, I'm adding that part, but only the Father in heaven. So don't believe anybody's prediction about the timing of Jesus' return. They don't know. Does not matter how many degrees they have, does not matter how many books they've written, they don't know the date for the return of Christ any more than you or I do. Jesus has final say on that, and he says that we don't know because his return is mysterious. Thirdly, his, his return is majestic. We know this because the angels say that he would return in the same manner in which he had left. And we've already talked about the majesty of this, leaving the disciples standing there with their eyes gazing into heaven and no doubt their mouths open and yet unable to say anything. Paul tells us in his letter to the Thessalonians concerning the return of Christ that it will be accompanied by a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God. And those are certainly marks of royalty. I mentioned a few moments ago that the Jews had waited 400 years for the Messiah to come between the closing of the Old Testament prophecies and the opening of the New Testament. And I, I also mentioned to you that they didn't recognize the Messiah when he did come. I want you to understand that at his second coming, that will not be the, the case. There will be no question as to what is happening when Jesus comes again, at least for those who are expecting it. The event will be so glorious and so majestic that it cannot be missed. The first time he came quietly in a small town in what we would consider to be a remote part of the world. But his return will be the opposite, opening the heavens for all of us to see. Now, again, all may not necessarily know what is happening, but the majesty of that moment will be clear to all. Now, I realize there is much more that we would like to know. There is more that we do know. I've not exhausted that topic this morning. But I do want to move forward at this point and rest content in knowing that his return is certain. It is mysterious, and it will be majestic. But I want to get to other questions for us today. And the second question is this, why is it important? Why does the physical return of Christ rise to the level that we are including it in this series on doctrines that define? In other words, why is this a tier one doctrine that must be believed for us to be Orthodox Christians? Well, to answer that question, I could merely repeat some of the things that we've already talked about in previous sermons. I could talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. In other words, the Bible says it. We've seen that already. 
And if the Bible says it and it does not happen, then the Bible cannot be trusted, and therefore we don't know what to believe in the Word of God. I could talk about the person and the work of Jesus, his claims and his person. In other words, he said he was coming again. And once again, if he is a liar at that point, then we can't trust anything else he's going to say. And both of those would be legitimate things to discuss. But because we've done those in the other sermons, I'm simply going to say those are equally true in this regard, but we're not going to take our time to look at those this morning. I want to share with you instead what might be some more personal reasons as to why this is important. First of all, this is important because it makes certain that our future is excited, exciting. When we are looking forward to something happening in the future, something really important, the anticipation and excitement grows as the time approaches. Whether it is Christmas morning as a child or something else as an adult, maybe an upcoming vacation, maybe a job promotion, maybe some large project finally coming to a completion, maybe an, an upcoming wedding. If we know something exciting is on the horizon, if we know a future event is going to happen, it brings excitement in the present. Now, I don't mean to imply by that that we ought to be giddy all the time, longing for the coming of Christ, but I do mean that there ought to be, especially as we age and the time approaches for us to go to heaven, there ought to be a sense of excitement in our lives. But again, because so many years have clicked off, we tend to be more indifferent than exciting. We aren't going to outright deny that Jesus is coming again, but we're not exactly excited about it either. I've heard several friends through the year, or I've had several friends through the years, who have either been selling a business or a piece of property or something. And so they'll have a, a person who's interested come by and look at it, and then um, I'll ask them sometime later for a follow-up, and they'll say, well, that individual's getting their financing in order, or they're checking out some other locations or whatever. But then invariably, they will say something to me like this. They will say, but you know what, I, I'm not going to get my hopes up. Because it's happened before and then it hasn't materialized. Or one time one of them said to me, I'm not going to get excited until the check clears the bank. And I certainly understand that mentality when it comes to selling a piece of property or a business, but that ought not to be our response concerning the second coming of Christ. Because it has been so long and there's been so many false predictions, even false claims about the fact that the Messiah has arrived when he hasn't, we tend to just not get so worked up about it. And all I'm saying here is we ought to think about it, and when we do think about it, it should excite us. Whether it is the second coming of Christ or our going to heaven when we die, either of these should, should excite us in the present. Our future is thrilling. It cannot be compared to anything that we are enduring in the present. And therefore, there ought to be at least a little twinge of excitement knowing that God has promised and he is going to deliver this future for us. And this sense of excitement and expectation goes hand in hand with the idea that Christ's coming could be imminent. Now, again, I'm not making predictions. I'm not setting dates. But I am saying that the Bible is clear that we ought to live with a certain sense of expectancy. Because Christ can indeed come in any moment. His coming can be in, imminent. That is certainly what we see in the New Testament. The first century Christians certainly believed that Christ was coming back in their lifetime. 
And even though that did not happen, even though they were wrong in that expectation, does not mean that we should not have that same expectancy. That's why when Paul was writing to the church in Thessalonica, he had to encourage them with the words that their loved ones who had died and gone to be with Christ were not going to miss the return of Christ. Because they had the, the sense of imminency, when someone died, they thought they were somehow going to miss out. And Paul tells them, no, they're not going to. It is like the parable of the ten virgins that Jesus told who were awaiting the arrival of the bridegroom. Only half of them were prepared to wait long enough. Only half of them brought oil enough to keep their lamps burning. And the other half missed out on the coming of Christ. Now, you might push back a little bit here while agreeing with me and saying, yes, I understand the amazing promises we have for the future, but we don't live in the future. We live in the present. And in the present, my life is not very exciting. In the present, my life is filled with anxiety and pain. In the present, my life is filled with trouble. Things are not going well at work or at home or perhaps both. And I don't know how I'm going to make it through another week, much less another year. So all this talk about the future, thinking about Christ's return, doesn't really help me in the present. And if that's what you're thinking, that's where you would be wrong. Because not only is our future encouraging, but because our future is encouraging, our present is enduring. And what I mean by that is that the vast majority of biblical prophecy that talks about the future return of Christ is done so not to satisfy our curiosity. It is not so we will know every detail about how it's going to happen. That's what we think, and that's why we get upset when we don't know more than we know. Because we think the Bible tells us about the future so that we can know all the details. But the vast majority of biblical prophecy is given to encourage endurance in the present with people who are struggling. That is, the vast majority of biblical prophecy is written to people who in their present circumstances, things are not going well. And so they are being reminded that they have a bright future, even if the present might be bitter. I shared with you last week the end of 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which not only tells us about his resurrection, but assures us of our own. And that chapter ends with these words, therefore stand firm, let nothing move you. That is, endure in the present because of what your future holds. Or what Paul says elsewhere, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. And Paul certainly knew his share of sufferings, far more than most of us. And yet he understood that the future promise of the return of Christ meant that anything we go through in this present life is not worth comparing, which is why Paul said, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ because I know that is far better. But on the other hand, he also had a desire to stay there and help them. So I'm not saying that you should think about heaven or the return of Jesus so that your problems will disappear. They won't. They will not make your problems go away in the present. But what they will do, that is what thinking about the return of Christ will do, is help you endure through those problems. Because when you know that there is an end point, you can keep going. 
Whether that's another semester of school and you're counting down the days until the semester is over with. Or whether that project is finally coming to a completion or whatever the task might be. When you know that there is an end in sight, you can endure. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. He's promised that he will return. And therefore, our future is exciting so that we can endure in the present. Our present life might be bitter, but our future is sweet. Which leads to the third point here about why this is important. It is because this promise is encouraging. That's actually what I've been trying to do in that second point. That is, I've been trying to encourage you in the present to endure because of the promises for the future. But it's not just my responsibility to encourage you. It's our responsibility to encourage one another. Again, in Paul's famous passage to the Thessalonians, where he is reminding them that their loved ones are not going to miss out on the return of Christ. When he talks about the the trumpet call and the command of God and the heavens opening and Christ returning, he ends that passage of Scripture by saying, therefore, again, on the basis of the certainty of the return of Christ, therefore, encourage one another with these words. We have a mutual responsibility to encourage each other in the fight or the race of faith since none none of us are in this alone. And that's why it's so frustrating when people go through difficult times of life and they drop out of church because it is at that very moment that they need the body of Christ to encourage them to endure in the present because our future is bright and yet they distance themselves from the body of Christ, isolating themselves and not receiving the encouragement that they need. We all need encouragement and we all need to be encouragers. Another reason why the return of Christ is so important. Our third question is this, what do we do? There's some overlap here because we've already been talking about what we do, and that is we encourage one another. But what do we do in the meantime? And of course, some would say, well, we have nothing to do but wait. And indeed, we do need to wait, but there is certainly more that we can do than that. First of all, all, I would say that we need to continue to work for the Lord. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to set up a tent on Mount Lacant so that we have a good view when Jesus finally comes. We are not told to sell everything and watch and wait. This is not the Disney parade where we've got to get in line hours before it happens. Neither is this the pickup line at school tomorrow where, amazingly, parents do the same thing. We are to work while we wait. We are to continue to be faithful in our service to the Lord in whatever capacity he has called and gifted us to do. Jesus told a parable about servants continuing to faithfully work, not knowing when the master would return home. Because they did not know when the master would return, they were to continue working at all points. As part of that story, Jesus said, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So whatever gifts you have, whatever abilities you have, invest them in the kingdom of God because you are to be faithful and you are to know that this is going to be fruitful and profitable for your investment. Secondly, we are to not only work for the Lord, but we are to witness to others. Instead of standing idly by looking into the heavens, what did the angels tell the disciples? They told them very clearly, 
Your job is to witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and ultimately to the end of the earth. And that is what the rest of the book of Acts is really all about. The book of Acts can be outlined with those very things, how the gospel goes out to the end parts of the world that was known at that time. Because indeed, the disciples do exactly what they are told to do by these angels. They're not just to look up into heaven, they are to witness to others. Now, you understand that everything we've talked about up until this point this morning has been positive. But the return of Christ is not all positive. And by that I mean that those who are not ready should not be excited. They will not be encouraged. Instead, it will be quite the opposite. Jesus said his coming will be like a thief in the night. Not for the believer because we're supposed to be awake and watching. But for the unbeliever, Jesus' return will be like a thief in the night. Gratefully, I've never, we've never had our home broken into in day or night. My first church was burglarized one night. It was sort of eerie when I got to the office that next morning and began to realize that something was amiss, especially when I saw that there was no computer on my desk. But we've never been burglarized at our home, but we've all had the experience of hearing something in the night and thinking that someone is in our home, being startled awake by some noise and being fearful that someone is in our house that ought not to be. It's unsettling to say the least, and yet certainly does not compare with what's going to occur when Jesus comes. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians that he will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He goes on to talk about the fact that there will be a separation in biblical terms of the sheep and the goats, or in our own terms, between believers and unbelievers. And the experience of these two groups will be vastly different at that particular time. Eternal life for some, eternal punishment for others. To the believer, Jesus says, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To the unbeliever, Jesus says that he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not a popular message in our day and age, but when Christ comes again, for those who are not expecting it, for those who are not ready, it will be a time of judgment and punishment. And that is why we must witness to others and let them know that this day is approaching. We must work for the Lord, we must witness to others, and we must make sure that we ourselves are awake. Wake up yourselves. That is, stop being indifferent to this tier one doctrine of the physical return of Christ and make sure, as Jesus says, that you are awake and that you are watchful and that you are ready. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, closes in chapter 22 with Jesus saying, surely I am coming soon. And the response to that is amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I trust you understand this morning that the return of Jesus Christ will happen. The question is, can you say, amen, come, Lord Jesus? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the promise of your return, that you are going to send your son, 
once again to this earth in a vastly different manner in which he came the first time. And when you do, you're going to gather your children, your believers, into an eternity of heaven that's been prepared for us. But at the same time, your coming is going to be judgment for those who do not believe. Lord, I pray that we would not only be awake and ready, but we would make sure in a loving way that we share this message with others so that they too have the opportunity to hear you say, come, those who are blessed of my Father, into an eternity that has been prepared for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.